we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters where we're recording from, the Waramai and Wanarua peoples. We acknowledge the Waramai and Wanarua elders, both past and present. on the field for the Newcastle Knights. Darren Tracy's first touch of the footy. Now Andrew John. Strikes a little hole himself. He's close. Right. He reaches out. That's a try to Andrew John. Root streak from the little halfback. And that's a good reward for a great game. It is debut match for the Newcastle Knights in first grade. Andrew John. Coming to you live from Warramilla and Nam Lands. This is the Bay 53 podcast, part of the sport's best friends podcasting network with your friends, Bretto and the K-Dog. Ladies and gentlemen, it's five. That's right, five in a row for the Knights men's team. While the NRLW Knights have bounced back from a disappointing loss against the Cowboys to reinvigorate their premiership defending season uh, with a thumping win over the Eels in the grand final rematch. Ladies and gentlemen, everything is very happy, very exciting and great time to be alive for Knights fans. So, Bretto, we've brought in the big guns, as it were, because you never know how long these things are going to last. And I think now is the time to really dive into the Knights uh, team's organisation while the going is good. Absolutely. Let's let's get all the good stuff while we've got it. And then if it never happens again, we've at least got this recorded to the end of time. Uh, ben, um, the, the, a good friend of the pod, Ben Darwin, mate, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, as I was about to press record, I did say to you, look, it's a little bit different, the circumstances this time, because last year when we spoke to you, the Knights were coming off a dra- just an, a god-awful 50-2 to two, uh, loss at home to the Melbourne Storm. Uh, and those two points came from, I think, Brett, I, we, we kicked a penalty off a on the halfway line after yeah, half time, after just, half-time yeah. just to get on the board. And, you know, it's a very, well, certainly from a fan's perspective, it's a very different team from 12 months ago. Um, ben, how are you finding the rugby league in uh, 2023? I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And I, and um, thanks for having me, by the way. Um, I, I think that the, the really interesting thing is, is for me has been watching this year, the redevelopment of Penrith how they put themselves back together again. Um, but the, 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 Knights, the Knights is a love affair that I've had now for a very long time. So I'm very excited for the success they're having. Mate, before I keep we putting my analysis hat back on. <laughs> before we talk too much about the Knights, I mean, you've opened up the Penrith Panthers can of worms there, and I'm curious to. And Bretto, you know, you can pull me out of the rabbit hole if you want. Uh, no pun intended. But I'm curious about that comment there. The the the, the what did you say? The rebuilding or the restructuring of the Penrith the re- Panthers? Reloading, reloading. I mean, yeah, yeah. One one thing we found really interesting was when we looked at that game, they played St Helens in the preseason is although they had a lot of cohesion, they had a lot of guys out of position, playing in positions they weren't used to. So there's different forms of cohesion. There's positional understanding, system understanding, interpersonal understanding. So even though they had lots and lots of games together, they weren't playing in the normal spots they were. But once they got that component sorted, they've basically... The, the Penrith Panthers are like a dragon. You cut its head off and another one grows. Mm. And so, so you know, I've had a number of conversations this year with people in rugby league saying... That's it because they've lost these guys who've gone to the Wests or Bulldogs or whatever. It's over for them. And it's not over because their system keeps putting them back together again. 
that's that's the really interesting part is it's not actually who is there it's the way in which it's built that lets that thing just just jump straight back up again and, and function as it is i want to i'm i'm really curious as a night fan sort of looking on i'm really curious to touch on this issue about well once they've lost xyz player you know it's over for them can i follow that line of logic then because the classic the classic anti fan wants to say in response to that then so does that mean then that none of their players are actually individually that great can we actually start saying that Jerome Luai or Nathan Cleary or um, um, uh, Dylan Edwards are overrated? You know what I mean? Like if the system is that good where you could fill in anybody in that spot, are we are, are fans uh, fans of, of any team other than the Panthers correct in saying that these players individually are overrated? I think it depends on what you say by overrated, but I'd, I'd keep coming back to a Cameron Smith, Cooper Cronk, Billy Slater, which is kind of the last incarnation that we had of this theoretical super club and go back to look at how much those players were ignored in the early days, how much, how unwanted they were. You know, Cameron Smith wasn't wanted by the Broncos. Slater wasn't wanted. Cronk was an average, you know, rugby union player as Matty Johns called it. And so why should this group be any different? The, the challenge is though, is that this group came to came through together. So it's very difficult to put them into isolation, but we know that if a you know if if you are running the Bulldogs and you say I want that player from Canada, from Penrith, and he comes to you, or you say I want that coach from Penrith, and he comes to you, he's not going to do at your club what he did at Penrith, because they don't have the same level of understanding with those around them, unless you basically exported the entire Penrith team together to another club. Is so, that the struggle? Is that the struggle that Cameron Seraldo then is having at the Bulldogs? He thought he could transplant what he was doing at Penrith at the Bulldogs organisation. Yeah, you can't transplant culture. I mean, I don't even know what culture is sometimes, but but fundamentally, if the numbers are bad, the numbers are bad. Their numbers are bad. Therefore, they're losing games. Um, and and the and a coach is is coaching a, you know, if a coach is coaching a very well built club, he will appear to be a genius. If he's coaching a poorly built club, he'll appear to be Cameron Seraldo. Right? He's not a bad coach. He's a great coach. Um, but but the history of sport is learning this lesson, right? And and um, the coach is only as good as the team that he has in front of him, but not in terms of the individual skill. It's more about the the construction of the team, you know, um, how it's put together, the way in which it's put together. And Penrith are so far beyond where any other club is at at the moment in the NRL or even within sport in Australia right now. The only only team close to them is is, is probably an island, a club called Leinster or the Crusaders. That that they are so well built and they are so dominant in terms of how they're functioning in a competitive competition. That's the key to this: is you know what what you know the competition has to be competitive that you're in for you to be able to to cite dominance and success. And they've they've built this up. You know this started in 2013, um, and you know success has many many fathers. If I was saying whether it's Phil Gould or the CEO or Ivan Cleary mm. or whoever it is, but it fundamentally is the system is the star. It's very similar to Man United. You know in the in the 90s, um, mm. up to sort of 2013. Um, the, the conversation I actually found really interesting, I don't know if you remember this, but they had a show in NRL 360 and they had a guy, they had Cook and one of the guys from Cronulla on NRL 360. And they said, and they said, you know, how's your preseason gone? They said, oh, really great, because we haven't had much change, right? Like, so they, they were enjoying the preseason. They felt they're heading in the right direction. And the last question was, so who do you think is going to be the most improved teams this year? And they both said Western Bulldogs. 
and the, and, the, <laughs> why, yeah. and it was it was because they've because they've recruited so well right it's yeah. like we don't learn the lessons yeah you know we don't learn the lessons um and and we also they don't want to doubt the talent of the people <laughs> they've recruited because they've recruited exceptionally well for talent uh but just from a cohesion perspective it's a it's a train wreck so the my question then is the antithesis of Cameron Serraldo with Andrew Webster at the Warriors came from the Penrith system as well and obviously had great success. Now, is that because Andrew Webster went into a great situation where the club had been built or is that that he had the players that he could put a system into place? What do you sort of see there? Um, there's a couple of things at play. One is um, the strength of opposition the West have had this year hasn't been great. So in terms of what you actually put up against them, they always get that, that nice... Um, a uh, little blip during state of origin period. I think the study said they yeah. do better during state of origin for, for obvious, obvious bunch of reasons. I felt like the Warriors had gone back more towards a New Zealand-based list, yeah, um, yeah, than, than they had previously. But they, they've been building for a couple of years. One thing that that we found really interesting a couple of years ago was during COVID, um, that they and the and Melbourne were getting massive amounts more time together like in camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, and they started to outperform their numbers during the middle of the season. It was really hard to with Melbourne because they're obviously, they won a year anyway. But but um, we've seen this on a number of different occasions. One of the other things that's happened this year is the same thing that happened in 2018 is when you have a World Cup the year before, the, uh, the powerhouses start quite slowly because they get everyone back so late. Yep. And so um, the clubs that have no World Cup players will kind of, for the first six weeks, really start to outperform their numbers. I remember Wests and Newcastle did that in 18 or 19, I'm going to forget. It was the reg last Rugby World Cup 2017? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got so many yeah. different sports yeah. in my head. Um, yeah. And and so, yeah, we definitely found in the first six weeks that those kind of uh, minnows, so to speak, it's not the right word, but that were performing quite well because they basically had a whole um, pre-season together, yeah. um, whereas whereas the, the big dogs kind of are taking a bit of time to warm up. And I had the same thing when I was at the Brumbies is we would – you know, preseason would start in November, but we wouldn't get back till the middle of January. And we'd have three weeks. We'd tend to lose all our trials and then get going for the for the for the business, you know, and, and start winning by the time the season started. Ben, can we talk to you a little Newcastle Knights, mate? When we did speak to you last year, off the back of that 50-2 to two loss um, uh, at home to Melbourne, the Knights were languishing in 16th place uh, on the table, looking like they were on course for a wooden spoon. It was a bit of a spoon battle um, just to avoid that for the rest of the year. Mate, we, we've, we haven't we – certainly, I, I certainly wouldn't say we've come full circle – uh, but here we are uh, in a whole new year. Um, the Knights have just crept up into 50%. So we've got a 500 winning record at the moment. We're in seventh position where um, we're, we're competing for finals. Mate, take the floor. What's changed? What are the Knights doing right? Or what are they doing despite the things they're doing wrong? So I think um, if I uh, jump back, so uh, was it what round was it last year? My apologies. I'm going to go to round 22. Um, so we lost to Melbourne in round sorry. eight. So it was sorry, pretty, uh, round. So we're talking about round eight in 2022. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to go to my apologies, my my chart. No, no apologies make necessary. Make any sense to anybody? Take um, your time. Our listeners are on their edge at their seat. <laughs> I assure you. So, so when I, when I look at the difference between the two sides in that particular game, that was Melbourne Storm, who was still at the peak of their powers. They had a very complete spine. They were still very well put together, and the Knights' defensive edges were complete train wreck 
right? So, so people playing out of position, people not with one another, the middle was um, up, up all over the place and they hadn't really yet settled on their spine. And um, if we fast forward now to, to 2023, the greatest differential is, is that one, their edges now are reasonably well-constructed and their spine is now basically, I think it's nine weeks straight with the same group. Correct. Um, and so what that allows you to do is if, if you, you know, if you don't want to change something, keep changing it, right? If you, if you want something to improve, don't change it. Right now, does that understand, make sense? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. yep. Um, so, so when you do like, and, and Cronulla 16 is probably the best example of this is the team did not change during the year. They lost four of their first five. They came home with a wet sail and, and won the comp. So, for Newcastle, what's happened this year is they've done what we call back-ending, which is they imp have improved through the season through a, a, a level of a modicum of, of stability. And so what it means is there's a law of diminishing returns with cohesion. In other words, like for Cooper Cronk and Billy Slater, the 300th game doesn't really mean anything. But what you'll get is if you get a reasonable level of stability, particularly within their spines, their, their spines tripled or quadrupled in the level of cohesion they've had in these, these 10 weeks, is you'll get massive levels of improvement because they're now at a reasonable level um, of understanding with one another. Therefore, they can actually start to go at an opposition. When your spine is in chaos, you basically can't place any pressure. You can't get to any detail in your attack. Um, but what they've also been able to do is to improve their the cohesion of their, their defence. Now, the defence actually at the first part of the year um, was was not as bad as their attack was. Does that make sense from a cohesion yep. perspective? Yep. yep. Um, but the thing with defense is it actually takes longer to build. And the reason for that is if you have four people in a room together, working together every day, they'll get more time together. Whereas if you have 13 in a room, they'll get less time together. So it just takes, it takes longer for an AFL team to build understanding because it's 18 to 21 people. A rugby union takes 15. A, a pair of, a pair of um, doubles partners they can get to a really good level of understanding in three games because they're, they're getting one game together only. Does that make sense? So yep. um, so the defense will take longer. So what you've got now is you've got the, the Knights are at a reasonable point in defense, albeit they haven't really been up against too many, you know, from what I can see, I think they've only played four or five teams that are, are good attacking teams so far this year. And the, particularly in the first six games, they didn't come up against any good attacking teams from a cohesion perspective, not from an individual perspective. Yep. Um, so, so they were able to defend reasonably well. That's kept them in through the tournament. But you're now seeing over the last six weeks, you know, um, 18, 20, 0, 18, 18, 6, 28 points against them. And, you know, last weekend, 14 of those points were down the same channel someone was out of yeah. in those seven minutes. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, the real score in that game for me over the other 70 minutes was 28 to 14 to the Knights. They were... Yep. They were the better side, but just shows goes to show to one one wrong move in one place can completely derail the whole thing. But you know, this was what is it the forty first different spine that Ponga has played in, and Jesus. and and now on that forty first different spine, um, he, they've just maintained that group for for now. Um, what is it? So nine weeks or something like that. And yeah, it'll and be you ten. Can, 10 this weekend. And you can and and what I think was really interesting, there was two games where they scored 16 and 12 points against not great defenses. Um, yeah, and Cowboys, and, e Cowboys yeah. and Eels. 
and they but they still stuck with it. And then they hit the Bulldogs who whose numbers were catastrophic. So they put 66 on them. But now they've gotten to the point where they can now score points on good defenses. That's they've really only hit that point in the last month. Now, are they now capable of I mean, the thing we'd always had a rugby league teams is is you need to be good enough to beat Penrith in Penrith. Now, to do that, you've got to be 20% better than them. The Knights are not at that point. The key now, though, is, is that we'll get, you'll get a good back end. Maybe they'll play finals. Maybe they won't. All things being equal, you know, I think as we saw with like a 2013, you come up against a reasonable side in Roosters that year and they just got beaten pretty soundly. At this point, they don't probably have enough detail in their attack to be able to, to, to deconstruct a, a Panthers defence. But there aren't that many other teams out there that are frail, uh, that are that strong defensively. Like even the Broncos can show signs they're not defensively that you know spectacular. So a bit of luck on the day and a bit of lining up against the right teams and a couple of injuries for the Panthers, you never know. But the really big thing for me is like, do the Knights then make enough changes in the preseason so that they can actually continue this, or do we start again where we were in round one? Can I just can I just jump on that little point there, Ben? I think a really big great sign for the Knights is the fact that their entire coaching staff are just re-signed, which has been a big issue for the Knights. They've turned over a lot of assistants each off season, so I think that that, that continuation should, you know, all, all the, the whole, you know, the whole team pretty much is re-signed for next year. The entire coaching staff's re-signed for next year. Surely that means that you know we can flow this into next year. I, I think so. I, th- I think one really big thing though is is. Um, you know, we do see teams, we, we call it the Pulatua coefficient. That might sound strange, but named after Tony Pulatua. No, we is love put, the, the Pulatua coefficient, Ben. We're guys, big fans of it. So you, you put together a good year, which will lead you into retaining most of your list for the second year. And then you're you're doing well. I mean, the Eels are a classic example of this over the years. They'll put together a good year, so Eels 09, and then everyone else will come knocking or they'll yeah. retire. So what you you know the thing that is the the most an annoying about the Panthers for everyone else is you know when they won the comp last year I think they were the second youngest team in the comp yeah yeah so so they can just keep going and keep reloading with who's ever coming through the system what I would say is a club like the Knights need to do is to actually um you know you don't copy what the Panthers have done you can there's a whole bunch of different ways to skin the cat you know Roosters have done pretty well over the years Melbourne Storm have done it well over the years but it's realistically about building a system that is sustainably has good numbers. So a bad year is fourth and a good year is first. Right now it feels like a good year is sixth and a bad year is 10th. Yeah. Um, for the Knights. Yeah, yeah. For the Knights. And so See, we'll take that. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know but, but, but we shouldn't, right? We shouldn't with the pathways that the Knights have available to them. The talent is that if the Knights can, if the Knights can build themselves to be as good as they could be, they they could sit above Penrith and and be indestructible, but you've got to take that you've got to make those decisions over the long term and not be thinking about okay we have to win this year we have to make finals this year because that kind of thinking is really destructive. And it's it's actually interesting you say that because I remember Adam O'Brien maybe three weeks ago he, he got the question you know like how yeah you know, this year do you consider yourself you know a finals threat blah 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 Premiership and he went we consider ourselves a team that are getting better. Yeah, to me that was a good sign. You know, like you're just like, well, yeah, we're getting better and we're enjoying winning, but we're not about going hell to leather this year. All in, you know, we're going to burn the place to the ground to try and win. We just see this year is the first step to next year. 
Yeah, and I think it, that you have to look at a club as a continuation of a number of years. I mean, mm. like we said, it was it was six or seven years for Penrith to do to do what they've done. Um, you know, the, the the hard part is sometimes getting permission to go backwards a little bit, or permission not to progress. Yeah. And sometimes a team will will actually be say going down in their age profile, but going up in cohesion comparative to that age profile, but actually winning less games. But which was Pen- which was Penrith in 2015. Penrith in 2015 yeah. with the storm battle with us. Oh, sorry, in the, in the spring battle with us. And they're absolutely heading in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. And there's other times when you're actually winning more games, but you're getting older, and so you're actually going nowhere. Yeah. And I think that the Knights at different points over the last 20 years have done that. Is like they thought 12 wins was better than 10, but they weren't actually looking at the condition of the club. And yeah, you have to look yeah. at where are we at as a comparative of like where could this lead us? And what you want to do is to lead you in the direction of becoming sustainably successful. Um, and then you want to be basically accused of cheating by everyone else or having an unfair advantage. Yeah. Oh, so you um, want Gordon Tallis talking about you? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, like you know, you're in a good space when people, you know, are, are, yeah. are shit canning you, and then and then when you have one bad game like Penrith at the start of the year, it's like the dynasty's over. Right? It was. It's not over. It's just it's just getting started again. So it's actually amazing with Penrith. Like Penrith don't get you know the Broncos or the Storm or the Roosters treatment of the Sombrero stuff. You know Penrith. Everyone just looks at Penrith and goes, "Yeah, those guys have done it the right way." You know, everyone looks. Every rugby league fan looks at Penrith and goes, "We all saw this coming." You know, this has been coming for so long. You can't say they've bought premierships because we all saw it coming. Yeah, but but the hard part even too though is that when you are accused of buying premierships, so much so much of the time. It's because the market is overvaluing your assets. Yeah, yeah. You know, you yeah. you you put together an amazing spine. They've grown up together, and all of a sudden, everyone goes, "Well, okay, he's worth one point five million. He's worth two, whatever." And you know, I'm I'm less angry at the Melbourne Storm scenario of basically trying to hold on to what they built. Um, you know, and I know that that'll piss a lot of people off, but we, you know, I think I think acquiring massive amounts of talent from somewhere else is very different. To hold it, trying to hold on to the talent you have through any means possible. Oh, like as much as I hate the storm and I, you know, there's, there's stuff with the salary cap. I agree with you there. Like they didn't go and clean the market out by buying everyone's best players. They just overpaid for their. Oh, sorry, they paid market value for their best players. The problem is the, the problem is the market. The problem yeah. is people are other people are literally willing to yeah. try to buy their success, and so yeah. the, that becomes part of the problem in many ways. I just love the game. But more than that, I love the community. If you're a fan of Rugby League or the NRL, you'll love Big T's Tees. Unique, affordable and made for fans. Find a link to the online store in the show notes below. You'd look good in one of Big T's Tees. Ben, can we talk a little bit more about Adam O'Brien? Because I know the, the sort of analysis that you do is in respect of the team itself. And I'm happy for you to correct me on this if I'm wrong. My impression has always been that the coach isn't inconsequential, but he cert- that, that role is not as, as consequential as everyone would have you believe. But in terms of the role that Adam O'Brien sort of has with the club, I mean, you know, he's in his fourth year, uh, all things being equal, it looks like he's going to see out his fifth year uh, if we continue on this course potentially longer. But I guess, you know, the calls were there to get rid of the coach. You've said before that, you know, getting rid of the coach, really throwing out more than just this season, you're throwing out years worth in terms of where you're going forward. 
How are you as a fan slash analyst? Are you comfortable with the job that Adam O'Brien's doing? Do you see things that he could be doing better? Where are you on the coaching front for the Newcastle Knights? Well, the one thing we know is we don't know what's going on behind closed doors in terms of the pressure on him to win and where that's coming from and how it, how that's manifesting itself and who's making the decisions about the list. And, and so all those components, we can put that to one side. But what we do know with, with Adam is that he's never underperformed comparative to the team on the field. Yep. It's the t- they've, they've always won the games they should have. They've lost the games they should have. Um, when the numbers are bad, they were smashed. When the numbers are good, they they won games. Um, so, so hang on. So just on that. So are you saying that this, the Storm game this year, the Knights should have won that game? Uh, let me have a look. What round was it? Two week, two rounds ago, two games ago. Or three. No, three, sorry. So what are we in, 23? Yeah, so round 21, I think. Yeah, yeah, no problems. They had, they had, you know, their spine was basically functioning at the same, same level as the, and plus it was a home game. So the, the Melbourne's basically Melbourne. I'll give you a number. It's not going to make any sense to you, but we accumulate all the cohesion together and we say, okay, a team is is um, one, another team is two. So we get to the number which is either zero plus one minus one minus two. Basically, the away team on a distance game has to be minus two for that game. Uh, Melbourne were minus 1.67. So they were not better enough than the Knights to beat them away from home. Wow, this is this is a special moment for me, Ben. The idea that the Newcastle Knights team is statistically and objectively better than the Melbourne Storm. That, that feels good, Brett, eh? No, they weren't, like I said, they weren't, they weren't better, but they were not bad enough to lose to, to, to the Melbourne. Ben, don't take away from me, yeah. mate. I need this. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> So, so like I said, like I said, the, the interstate clubs, the outside of Sydney clubs, you you, you basically have to build yourself 20% better than the rest of the, than the Sydney teams because you have to be able to beat a Sydney team in Sydney to win the grand yeah, final. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember a long time ago reading an article about the Broncos of the 90s and was saying, you know, everyone thought they were 10% better than everybody. In reality, they were 30% better than everybody because they had to keep winning in Sydney. Uh, yeah, and 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 the other thing too is if you actually look at their games, Origin took its toll on them, and I think yeah. it's something like nineteen ninety five to, I don't know ninety eight, maybe ninety two to ninety eight. They they won something like ninety two percent of their games outside of Origin. The round yeah, wow. games outside of Origin was just wow. yeah. ridiculous. By the time they just all they need is a couple of weeks post Origin. I had sort of long conversation with Peter Ryan about this about, you know, how long did you need after Origin to get back into the groove again? And he was just saying two or three weeks. Once they were back there, they were sweet and the way they go. And yeah, they were they were imperious. It's amazing anyone else won anything during that period of time. Ben, we, we do digress. I do want to just flesh out the Adam O'Brien piece a, a little bit more, as it were. So as you were saying, we've won the game statistically that we were supposed to win. Yes. So from your position then... Is there any more that Adam can be doing? I mean, like you said, based on all things being equal and everything we know, is there any more that he can be doing? Or is he, you know, he's doing what he's doing and what he's going to be doing will, you know, be dictated by things outside of his control? If, if I offer you an example of in rugby union of this is um, Michael Checker as a coach in his last year of the Wallabies, they imposed a um, selection panel, right? So you had now, as opposed to one person deciding who the team was, you had three people deciding, okay? And a panel is, as always, they and three of the guys on the panel all were backs coaches. So they basically began horse trading between each other on who was going to be in the back line 
So every time someone failed, they go someone else, someone else. So that point, Checker did not necessarily have the level of control that he'd had previously. We don't know what level of control O'Brien has over the team. So if I say to him, if I sat down with him and said, well, mate, why weren't you, why didn't you choose this player, this player, this player? He might say, it's completely beyond my control. But what I can say is given what they have and given where they've, how they've grown during the season and given, you know, you have the state of injuries and things like that, the team has gone up in cohesion through the year, but not enough to catch the top teams. And so what you then have to start thinking about is how do we chain seasons together over the year so you don't keep starting back where you are, that it's so it's just simply too far for them to catch up over the season. Because um, you basically you need you need to be top four, and you also need to be built a certain way, which they're not yet to win to win finals to win grand finals. So with Adam, with his entire time at, at Newcastle, if we just talk about the team that took the field, other than the uh, high vis jersey games, which we'll go into it some other time, <laughs> but um, is that yeah? The, I mean, he's he's done fine, but so of the last, you know. There's only there's only one season really where we saw a high level of underperformance of the Knights, and it was the back end of '92. The rest of the time, they've been. Was that David um, White? Yeah, about six games. The last six games, they just were they were a good team. They're on top of the table. They beat Brisbane for memory, and then they lost their last six um, under under David. Now the reasoning, I'm I don't know, but um, had enough conversations with people to say, okay, now I can understand reasonably well you know, why yeah. it's taking place. But, um, you know, they, the the Knights have actually been really, really good at hitting their numbers most of the time. Bretta? I've got it in terms of Adam O'Brien there. So in Adam's first two years, you know, we scraped in the finals with horrendous for, for and against, you know. We, we, in terms of for and against, we did deserve black finals. Obviously had an awful season last year. This season feels different as a fan. Like, obviously, the four against is better. We're having big wins. We're being better teams. Do the numbers indicate that, that this team is better than those 2021 teams? 100%. 100% they're better. But the, the key to this is how do you build on it? How do you not lose those guys? Because it's the hope that kills you, right? Yeah. Um, and it's it's about saying, okay, how do you take the next step between going from a a, a really poor team to a competitive team, to a middle range team where the Knights are at now, it's actually a much bigger step to becoming a highly competitive team. Going from bad to good is actually quite easy. Going from good to great is much harder, takes much longer. Um, do you, do, so do you yeah. think the next step for the Knights now is to keep rolling as they are now, or do you still think of the talent it needs uplifting? No, it's, it's, it's really a case of, um, one of the things that we find is that the ability of players to come into a team and then and then become better players requires stability of the team they're coming into. Yeah. So a really good example we found with the Crusaders in Super Rugby, when a player was in the mid-2000s, when they played their first game for the Crusaders, they'd already played with 11 of their teammates yeah, in right. their first game. So the chance of you playing well is pretty good. If you took that number and looked at it the nights the last 10, 15 years, most of the time a guy's debuting, he hasn't really played with any of those guys before because they were at the Roosters or they were at St. George or somewhere else. So the ability for guys to come in and do well was really, really difficult. And so um, that's that's a challenge. And then the next part of that is, is in chaos, no one gets better, right? Like Kalen hasn't really 
dramatically improved as a player as much as he might at some other clubs. In the same way, say Cleary's improved over a period of time, or Luai's improved over a period of time. You can start to see the improvement in him now because they're now getting to the detail of how they want to play as a as a spine, because they've now just started to settle in, and so you hopefully will start to see some really dramatic improvement of him as an individual player now. But imagine if we could have done that over the entire time he's been at the Knights in all 41, take away being in part of 41 different spines. In that you know scenario of stability, people improve. So the thing is, is to get the club to a state where they can actually start to develop players. Because when you can start to develop players, you stop looking outside. If yeah. you have chaos, you can't bring anyone in because if they come in, they've never played with anyone, therefore they play poorly. And if you say, well, no one, none of our players get any better, then you start looking elsewhere because of what you know there's a there's a classic scenario you see all the time. Manchester United went through it, is when Manchester United started to become unstable, they said there's no good kids anymore. That wasn't the case. It's just that that they weren't built well to accept kids into their environment. So can I ask, in terms of that stability, are you talking about on the field as well as off the field? So obviously, administratively, um, you know, coaching-wise, you've got to get that stability as much as you do when it comes to combinations on the field? I, th I think that when you make a change of coach, the new coach will have a different idea of how to play, and yeah. so he'll recruit to that. He'll have a different idea of the players you have. I, mem I remember, you know, uh, Brian Smith, he moved on Danny Baderas. Right, his idea was Danny Baderas was not the type of player that he wanted. If there's another coach, if it was still Michael Hagen, for example, Michael probably had a, a different view. Now, Danny's Danny's an all-time human being, so let's put that to one side. But let's say I don't know enough about him as a footballer to tell you he was outstanding or poor. But everyone will have a different view on that. So simply by making change, you'll have a change of philosophy, a change of action, and that can be in your recruitment. It can be in your in your um, S&C, you know, when you get people doing different movements, for example, you get higher levels of injury sometimes. You know, there's lots of examples of that in history where people are coming and brought in new techniques and it's caused injuries for people. So it's, it's having the consistency to understand what do we need to evolve and what do we need to keep as it is. And when you keep people in the house, you actually build, start to build a collective memory and you, and you build your sort of IP inside the place and go, no, no, we don't do that. That's not how we do business. We do it this way. Whereas if you don't have any internal memory, anyone can come in and go, okay, guys, we're going to do it the Bulldogs way now. We're going to do it the Eels way. And then everything you've learned just gets put to one side and then and then off you go. So the stability, stability in the governance and in the in the people and the processes leads to stability on the field, which leads to outcomes on the field. So we're going on that. So essentially... It's really been taken off in the last maybe 12 months of the Knights where Adelaide Bright essentially said every person that we think can be an NRL football player for the Knights will play a certain way in, in all their grades. So right through from 18s, they play positions that Adam O'Brien wants to. He basically, you know, instructs how the teams are going to play. And I watch reserve grade pretty much every week. And the reserve grade team are a mirror image of first grade. They play the exact same style. Is that what you're talking about? You know, is that what we want? We want to see that, you know, where guys are so inbred in how they do things, they do things together, that by the time they get to first grade, it's second nature. Well, not only that, but also too, is if you're going to have more guys coming from reserve grade, when guys come up and in, they've played with those guys before. But yeah, 100%. It, so, yeah. so that process across the whole club, that, you know, it, it shouldn't, that shouldn't even have to be stated. 
But the Knights, the Knights, were, all about winning, the Knights were all about winning premierships in those lower grades, and all they ever did was try and win, you know, and, that, and that's been a huge issue for the club. Well, Warriors, who was the one that win the Holden Cup every year, and that didn't get them anywhere. So, yeah. I, 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 so, so like, it's, you know, reserve grade is not about winning. Under-20s is not about winning. It's about bending down your systems and to be able to keep them together um, reasonably enough so they can serve your higher purpose. But the problem is, is that when your first grade is really, really stable, guess what? Your reserve grade is stable as well, and they start to do well anyway, right? And so if, if we say that stability is a greater driver of success than individual skill, what ends up tends to happen is if your first grade is in chaos, your reserve grade is in chaos as well. And so yeah. trying to make them win is just completely hapless because you're, you're always affected up and down the chain. Which, which is kind of, kind of interesting. You sort of Penrith, the example that, you know, like Penrith have always been like us, you know, they would win a lot of lower grades, but then they went off the boil for quite a few years there. But since the first grade has been unbeatable, the reserve grade has been unbeatable. Under 20s have been unbeatable. You know, that, a couple of years ago, they won all four of the senior grades, you know, like it's amazing how that, that sort of, yeah, flows down through the club. Up and down. That's the good yeah, thing about yeah, it, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. But it's it shouldn't be a case of if our 16s or if our 18s win, then we keep them. It should be, and this is the, there's a great video Penrith put out a couple of years ago. They just said, we develop from within. That's it. And I remember when I was at the Brumbies, you know, during the seasons we were winning, because of the nature of our reserve grade, our reserve grade would get beat by 50 most of the time. We just did not have... We, we weren't getting the guys out of New South Wales. We just didn't have a big pool to draw from and we just really struggled. Um, but that didn't matter because it served a different purpose. It served the purpose of what was coming up and, and how we were then going into the system. Hey, Ben, I, I want to ask you a little bit something specifically about the Dolphins game on the weekend because you sort of touched on it. Like we were down a, a player and that was when um, the Dolphins scored three, I think, of their five tries. But I want to ask you about, like, positionally, how important that sort of stability a, that stability works in terms of the way you look at the game. So we played, I think, 20, about 20 minutes down a man against the Tigers earlier this year, and they didn't, they barely looked like they were going to puck, um, break our line. We ended up winning that game 14 to 12. So, that, so they didn't score a point against us while we were down to 12 after Jacob Saifidi was off the field. Now, when Lockie Fitzgibbon got binned for 10 minutes on Saturday, I was relatively comfortable. Obviously, wasn't happy that he'd been binned, but I was at least comfortable in the knowledge. I said, look, we've actually defended quite well when we've been down a player this year. I can live with that. Is the fact that Lockie's a second rower, which then sort of, and tell me if I'm tinfoil hatting here, but is the fact that Lockie's a second rower, which is a fairly critical defensive position on an edge, was his loss something that then um, precipitated just an awful showing by Greg Marshu, who you talk to any fan after Saturday's game, and I'll say, well, he had his worst game for the club on Saturday. Are, are those all linked, or am I looking too much into it? Because no, as you said... You're 100%. You know, they defend from the inside out. It's the link to the, the, the middle group. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me, sorry about that. Um, it's the link to the middle group. And so from the conversations I've had, you know, I don't know anything about rugby league, but but the conversations <laughs> I've had with people And you still that, know more than we do. <laughs> I don't know, but but that, that that link of the of the people talk about the fifth defender in um and if you have a if you have a uh, uh, somebody missing from that group, it's how does that group push out? And there's gonna be a high level of ambiguity. So there's there's having somebody in that spot. And then in that person in that spot. I mean, what you're talking about with with Marjorie, did you say? 
Yeah, Greg Marju. Yeah, is attribution bias. Is we are overly attributing it to the individual rather than the situation. Right. Yeah. We are attributing his his poor performance much as we, you know, Darren Lockyer's first test match, you know, is useless, never play again for Australia. Um, because of the situation of what he's in and, and what he's functioning under, or Cook for New South Wales this year in the origin when he was at left centre. Oh, no, no, I don't think you'll find any fan who thinks he <laughs> particularly poorly that night. I, no, I, well, yeah, but he was, but but you can understand that that he did play poorly if he was a centre, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 100%. Um, so, so I think that, that that's the case. I think also part of that bias is West's ability to take apart the Knights when they have that level of weakness was marginal. Oh, 100%. In yeah, other words, yeah, you're, look, you're looking at it through those glasses of, well, when we're against West and we're a man down, we're okay. Therefore, if we're going to be a man down against the Dolphins, who are not bad, um, if I just can I just talk about the Dolphins for ten seconds? Actually, can you talk about it for a bit longer than that? Because I think this is a great segue. I'm fascinated by the Dolphins this year. We had them winning five games at the beginning of the year, and people laughed at us. And I yep. just figured that the way the season goes, you know, you've got 24 games, you're bound to, you've got to win a couple. They're on eight. Can you talk? I'm happy to listen if you are, Brett. Talk to us a bit about the job Wayne Bennett's doing, what he's constructed. Um, yeah, talk to Tell us about the Dolphins. So even when they played their first game, they still had lots of shared experience in their side um, through other sources, through brothers through not brothers club, but brothers, literally brothers, um, through, through storm, through Broncos. Um, so guys who'd played together in other, other systems. So they did that quite well. The second thing that happens, and we've seen this a lot across expansion franchises. And so we've looked a lot at, at, at there's a, the, the, the really interesting franchises for us are expansion franchises and merge franchises. Now, if you take the Broncos, the Broncos were not an expansion franchise because they had so many players who played together previously. It was more like the Queensland State of Origin team just becoming an NRL team. Like they were already functioning at, you know, let's say a thousand games that already played together in their game one against Manly. Um, and and Melbourne always also did that well as they took quite a number of guys, particularly out of the Hunter and Newcastle reserve grade who played together previously. But the Dolphins in being an expansion franchise one thing that happens is they'll have a starting 13 that they will train with um, in that sort of off season. And then once they start to, to leave that starting 13 after a couple of games, if they get injuries, they start to fall over. So it actually seems to mean that their first six to eight games are actually quite strong because they're basically trained that way as that group. And then once they, once they get injuries, like I said, and they head, head in a different direction. The other thing, as I said, was there was a couple of weaknesses of teams early on because of that World Cup cycle. Their first game against the Roosters, I think the Roosters had five or six guys playing out of position, which was, I think the Dolphins had one guy playing out of position. Yeah, that's so that's that, commonly referred to as Robbo ball. <laughs> yeah, well, and that and that at particular occasion, um, that wasn't wasn't particularly effective. But they, you know, they did um, extremely well for that period of time. But then once they've deviated outside that group, you can see they've started to fall away. So generally people will think that teams will um, improve like the Dolphins as the season goes on, but they don't have the depth of guys playing together in reserve grade over the years and playing training together in first grade over the years so that when somebody else has – it's it's not like you don't have a next man up philosophy in those type of clubs. 
Mm. It's basically pray your starting 13 stays together for the whole season and <laughs> sort that out as we go. And so um, uh, there's a um, – this, this is an awful joke, but we talked about this at, uh, at work the other day. There's a movie called The Cove. You guys ever heard of The Cove? Oh, yeah. No, I don't even know. It's a Japanese movie. It's a movie about Japan where they slaughter a bunch of dolphins. Gotcha. So sometimes, sometimes when when it's going pear shaped for the dolphins, we say, "Oh my god, it's like the cove all over again." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but like they've done, they've done as well as anyone else. Um, but the thing I do like about them, and if you compare this to say the Titans, when the Titans first formed, the Titans did not have one single player that had not played reserve, first grade somewhere else. So the Titans were fundamentally a an older team. So yeah. in two years, they were pretty functional, but after that, they kind of fell away. Yeah, The Dolphins kind of feel a bit more, um, they'll reload to be sustainable. I'm really interested to see what they do with their reserve grade, uh, whether they go to one. I think they've got two at the moment, is that right? Yeah, they've got two at the moment, yeah. As I, as I really think it would serve them very well to go to one reserve it's, grade. It's, it certainly hurt the Broncos. When the Broncos started to spread their reserve grade out right across Queensland Cup, it really, really hurt the Broncos for a few years. They haven't won a title since they've done it. Yeah, you know, it's sort of, it was, and, it, and I, I, I assume it was a Queensland Rugby League sort of going to the Broncos, but it made no sense at the time. And yeah, it bit them on the back backside. It's, it's, it's the politics of it. I mean, you can still pull it off, but it just gets that much harder. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it's really hard for us to even tell how good Penrith's numbers are because some of them playing since they were 12. You know, we're not going and writing down who's playing with who down there, but. Why um, not, Ben? <laughs> Because we're covering twenty eight different sports and I don't have time, so <laughs> it's, it's, quite, it's kind of the it's kind of what actually has happened at Newcastle that a lot of um, the guys coming through now have played through played together from sixteens. You know, your Matt Croakers, your Dylan Lucases, all those sort of guys are, are that Penrith system where they've played every single grade together, and um, which is obviously how the club was built in the nineties. Um, so we're certainly seeing the fruits of that, aren't we? Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, when you look at what are the drivers of success, for example, like there's there's no correlation between facilities and success. Like yeah. you look how bad, you know, where they were trading Adamstown or out of the uni with Newcastle, no offense mm. to uni, but, you know, like <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the halcyon days, the facilities were awful. Yes, they, um, they, they, were, they weren't even slightly professional, not even yeah. slightly Crowley was telling me, you know, one of the years they won the grand final, they're basically selling T-shirts. Just to be able to play in the grand final, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the ninety-seven basically was funded by the ninety-seven grand final t-shirts. I yeah. still remember when the Kangaroos played their first ever test at, or sorry, a test match at McDonald Jones Stadium, two thousand and five, maybe two thousand and six, and a lot of the Knights, a couple of the Knights players who were picked in the team were embarrassed about the fact that they were training out at the uni and and having to go into the the giant um, sort of uh, storage units for. And they, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of players from outside the outside the Knights didn't realise that that those were the types of facilities that a professional NRL club was using at the time. In 1996, I was living in um, Church Street in Cooks Hill, I think it is, and uh, my mum came up, and we were like, "Oh, there seems to be something going on." Number one over, we went and actually watched the game of cricket. It was New South Wales against the West Indies, and we actually sat, <laughs> on, sat on the hill, and there was this koala coming around trying to sell raffle tickets to everybody, and it was Brett Lee. <laughs> wow. I just thought of that story. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. So, uh, I mean, sorry. I mean, Ben, 
Well, I guess, can I ask you this? And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Um, what can what can Knights fans be hoping for? What can we sort of be um, realistically aiming towards in terms of what 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 should a successful season realistically look like for the Newcastle men's side in twenty twenty three? Well, it's, I'm, asking, it's, I'm trying it's, to ask you where you have us finishing without asking you that. <laughs> well, well, the one thing is that if anyone tells you they know where things are going to finish, they're they're kidding themselves, right? Like like. Because the first thing is we don't know who's going to, you know, there there is a mathematical uh, set of probabilities where the Knights win the grand final, okay? But it would take a lot of car accidents. It would take a lot of injuries and torn hamstrings. I, and, yeah, and, you know, yeah, it's like that episode of The Simpsons with the softball team. We get you. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so let's put all things being equal is that, um, you know, they've got their remaining rounds. I've done the predictor round 50 times in the last couple of weeks. And half the time I have the Knights finishing in the eight, half the time I don't. Um, the, the, the challenge is, is that at some point they're going to have to bump up against a good team. And when they do, they're probably not going to be able to win that game. But there aren't actually that many good teams outside of Penrith. It's Penrith and everyone else at this point. So Souths have frailties. Canberra have frailties. I can't believe Canberra's top four. Right? Nobody but, can believe it. Not even if, their fans can believe it. If I, I want a statistic on what the score line is when Ricky Stewart's on the sideline. Cause I reckon, I reckon they would be like 10, they'd score points, 10 points for 300 against. Cause the moment he comes to the sideline out of the, the comebacks on, the comebacks come back on. on. It's <laughs> like the, it's like everyone panic. Yeah. Um, one, one year they lost a game like 20 points in the last 10 minutes. And I, and I wrote on Twitter, I wonder if all the journos are drawing straws as to who's going to ask the first question. And this journo <laughs> came back and said, that's exactly what's happening right now. It was, <laughs> and it was going to be how how uncomfortable can Terry Campisi look in a, in a press conference? Um, yeah. So I, I just, you know, the Eels have, have kind of stumbled a little bit. That's, sorry, my dog again. Um, there just isn't, there just isn't really a team. I mean, the Storm themselves are reloading. Um, but we know, always, think... Bredo and I were talking about one of the reasons actually we had a little bit of confidence about the Knights going into the Storm was that the Storm generally do the the, the early 90s Brisbane or the 90s Brisbane piece where they they ease off for a couple of weeks after Origin so they can reload for the last month of the season. I think it's, I don't think it's so much easing off as it's like their guys coming back and getting used to each other again. Yeah, yeah. But one thing that's happened with Melbourne is they don't have the number of Origin players they used to have. It's not. It's like it's some, but it's not as prolific as it as it once was. Um, but I, I just, I just think that that at some point Newcastle is going to bump up against a reasonable side, and you know whether that be in in the last six or the last four. But they can go on runs. You know, like if you look at the state of the West Tigers, you know, five, you'd never say they could have won that comp, but they back ended really, really well. They put together a good spine. They outscored teams. They got themselves like if you had if you played that grand final in round one, they would have lost that game by thirty, but they were in the condition to be okay enough to win the grand final thirty weeks later. Does that make sense? So you improve yeah. the really bad teams will improve their cohesion over the year. So the Knights are putting together a side that is capable of winning a final, but just not a grand final yet. Yeah, that that's what you know. I, I was spoken to a few people recently where they're sort of asking, you know, why expectations for the club, and I'm I'm with you. I think that we have a team that will take can take advantage of teams around our level. On our day, we'll win a final, maybe two, but eventually, you're right. There's a team there that no matter how well we play, we're just not going to be able to roll over the top of. 
Yeah, and 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 but the thing that that has happened is there's a there's still the side. So I'm just trying to find a good example here. Um, you know, like like Wests this year have kept chopping and changing as the season gone. Um, and so it sort of means that they really aren't able to put themselves in a position to be competitive. But if they'd actually accepted losing a lot more, that might sound really horrible. But sometimes you need to understand where you were. Like um, Bulldogs, sort of similar type scenario. They just, ha- every time they've lost, they said, right, we need to change to fix it. They actually didn't. They just need to understand we are, we have a, a fantastic list of players who haven't played together. We need to cop losing for 10, 15 weeks. And then at the end of that, we can put something together to be competitive. Canterbury the thing is, is that the Tigers have been accepting losing for 10 to 15 years now. Yes, but they've been doing, they've been doing that turnover every year. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are listening to the Bay 53 podcast. Can I just go back to Canterbury? Canterbury are interesting because Canterbury with a big off-season sort of hype team because of the new coach, the changes. Actually, because just on that, with the weekend that just passed, they are officially out of the finals race. That was seven seasons in a row that they won't play finals. Which which is amazing for a club the size of Canterbury. But, yeah, so – but it was interesting how the start of the year they were the hype team and then they had a few injuries, expectations as they lost, come down. It wasn't probably maybe a month, six weeks ago, when Gus said, oh, this was always going to happen. Do you do you believe that Gus always thought this was going to happen, or I don't know how much he knows about about our work or or our way of thinking or this way of thinking. Um, I think that he generally has a sense that you do have to go forwards before you go backwards to a certain extent, and and it's really hard about you know do you tell the players you tell the players this is going to be a really difficult year, or do you say this is going to be great until it's not? I'm but surely, a... surely he yeah. saw that with the Panthers. And surely when he was bringing players in, like he wasn't telling you James Maloney's and your Jamie Sowards, look, I'm bringing you guys in as bridging superstars until we're successful. Like he, he wasn't bringing them in under any illusion other than, look, I think you guys can help us win. Yeah. And and the, the way in which the Bulldogs are built and the way in which their politics sits is quite different, I think, to Penrith as well. I think there's a lot more to navigate at the Bulldogs. Yeah, yeah, a lot more to navigate yeah, on this front yeah. of Wests. Like, yeah, the West board is the problem. I can, <laughs> it's a, that's all it's sort of going to come down to. So, do you think mergers work? So, so George Illawarra has got the same issues as West. Do you think mergers don't work, or what, what do you sort of think there? Well, if you look at St. George Illawarra, like their first merge wasn't a merge, it was Illawarra plus yeah. six, six players, but yeah. the, the, the problems of the board have remained. So, you need fundamentally a singularity of vision, yeah. and if you still have two different agendas as you have with Wests, um, then you're always going to be pushing it the proverbial uphill. So, you know, like how many problems do they have with their reserve grade, you know, over the years because the reserve grade was playing at one place and it was West. Yeah, they'll, they'll Bowman and West and they'll West and they'll Bowman now back to West. It's never yeah. actually be the West Tigers reserve grade, which is amazing. Yeah, so it's really um, – sorry, my dog is eating my wife's shoe. <laughs> um, I – I think I think that Gould knows what it's going to take, but I think this is a much bigger job than Penrith. And I think part of that is that that people out west absolutely crave success, but they're willing to pay the price to do it. I don't think you have that with a cut with a club that's making what 120 million dollars a year in poker machines. Yeah, like they want success now. They want wins now. Um, okay. 
Canterbury, Canterbury have that idea, you know, and I still think it Canterbury one of the biggest clubs in the competition. So their fans just think, well, we can just go out and buy and immediately be fixed. Where Penrith didn't have that. Penrith are always, we want local juniors playing for us. We can develop our, our premiership team. It's, it's an easier job there. Yeah, you can get buy-in from it. And part of that is um, there's a sense of, of they're up against it out there, you know, whether we're yeah. ignored out here and, yeah. Yeah. you know, we know what we're going to have to do. But also, too, is like that, the 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 juggernaut of of the Penrith Leagues clubs and how they've sprouted their wings up even as far as Newcastle, they seem to be very, very well um, managed. Um, and I think, too, is that you don't, you don't want to, you know, we talk about singularity of vision, but one of the problems I've found is that what you don't want to do is basically hand everything over to a coach that's going to be there for five years and then go again. You know, I think that that like Cam- uh, like Cameron Sorrell, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, where he where he ends up, but you know, we we don't necessarily know. He might be there for for ten or fifteen years, but you know, you see it quite a bit where um, a club will have a vision of what they want to do, and then they'll go, "We really want to get this guy in." Okay. Now, you could you could say that this that's been the, that was the case at Newcastle at a certain point in time, where they've had a coach come in and they've gone, "Okay, you have the keys, you do it." I'd probably say that's happened three times at the Knights over the last 20 years. They kind of hand over the reins and they're basically willing to say, right, you have control and whatever you say is going to be the right thing to do is going to be the right thing to do. As so hang on, to, can I guess yeah. Brian Smith, Wayne Bennett, Nathan Brown? I didn't say those names. Cool. <laughs> you, said, you said those names. I didn't say those <laughs> names. But that's not even their fault, right? It's like you don't you don't hand over the keys it's, it's really about what you're willing to give away. And so, you know, some of those guys might come in and say, well, if I'm the only way I'm going to do this, I want to bring all my own people in and I want to have complete control over the program. And, you know, for say Nathan Brown, that worked really well at St. Helens, which was a very high cohesion club and was fantastic. And he did an amazing job, but then, then it's a case of you then hand that over to, to that scenario when things aren't necessarily well built, it's going to take a long time to fix. If it gets half done, then you start again, and then someone else comes in and tries to do it. So you end up basically spinning your wheels, and that's kind of hey. Can how I it ask you for twenty years? Can I ask you a quick question about Brownie? And this is a genuine question, actually, because I think it's something I need to ask from a cathartic perspective, P- particularly what you just said about St Helens. Do you think what Nathan Brown was trying to do at the Knights over his four years, <coughs> he, genuinely, he genuinely thought that that was going to ultimately lead to success, because. The, the tinfoil hat conspiracy theory was that he was just really, you know, here for a paycheck, taking the club for a ride and didn't care one way or the other. Do, do you think what he was, he was genuinely trying to do something that would build a successful rugby league men's team? I think everybody, every, you know, let's, let's, you know, what, one thing I try to put to one side is people say, oh, you know, this team's playing terribly. They've got no pride in the jersey. They're not trying. Everybody's trying. No effort. Yeah. And most people are good people. Right. Yeah. And I, all the interactions I had with Nathan seems like a really, really nice guy. He and I actually had the same doctor on the field when I had a spinal injury. Um, you know, three, he had the same doctor when he had his spinal injury two years earlier. Yeah, right. So, and so um, we've sort of known some of the same people. But I think one thing that did happen was he would come in and he would make some changes and that wouldn't work. So it'd be like more changes again and then more changes again. So there was a very high turnover of players during that time. And I think, I don't know if I've quoted this number to you before, but during his tenure at the Knights, the Melbourne Storm in round 10 of their first year was more stable than the Knights ever were under his tenure. 
Jeez. So I hope that there's that, that number, number that makes sense. So it never got to a point of being stable enough to figure out if anyone was any good. Which is, which is interesting is that Nathan Brown did the literal, got, got on the TV and said, we will lose this year. Yeah, he yes. the fans the fans backed him. The fans said, "Okay, we're going to lose this year," and yet he still, you know, kept chopping and changing, even though he had the backing to just ride it out. And there's no promotion relegation either. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, um, yeah. But it's that sort of it's the tinkering, you know. Um, and do you think that's just because he couldn't help himself, or do you think it's outside pressure? What do you sort of like? I said I, the one thing I know is I don't know what's going on yeah. underneath. But but one thing is that attribution bias, which is when it's built badly. They cannot play the same way. The individuals cannot perform to the same standard as they would somewhere else. And so if you keep buying guys who did really well somewhere else and bringing them in and they're not performing to the same standard, it's like, what are you doing? Why are you playing so badly? So you'd keep on changing them? I have a, I have a theory there. I might be wrong, but in my rugby league experience, the, the Nathan Brown idea was we'll have a team of kids, of locally produced kids generally, and we'll buy these culture guys, you know, these guys that have come from Melbourne and Corral, these hardened players and from the Roosters, you know, and they'll, and they'll fix the culture, which to me was the complete wrong way about it. He sort of, he just assumed these guys would be able to produce at the nights when he could produce at those other clubs, and that was just never going to happen. Yeah, and I think I'll always just keep coming back to the numbers. The numbers completely reflected that. And, um, you know, if you if you bring in a bunch of guys to try to tell everyone what to do, it can actually piss a lot of people off. And then, then that, and, and, you know, you hear whispers, and apparently that was a bit of an issue was that, you know, there was guys that were coming in and just, you know, demanding it be done how they used to do it. And these guys at the club are going, well, no, that's not how it is here. And it just became a shit fight. And and that's a th- we talk about that in business all the time is that just because something works somewhere else doesn't mean that you should do it. And and you know so many people go and travel down to the Melbourne Storm and go and see the way they're doing things and they try to copy the process. Yeah. Don't copy the process. Copy the construction. Copy the way it's built. Yeah. So that's what Penrith have done. Penrith have rebuilt themselves better than the Storm were, but they don't play the same way that Storm do. They don't wrestle the same way. It's a completely different system. So. And, and what will often happen is you'll go down, you'll look at the facilities and go, well, these are pretty much the same as we have. Yeah. So we have a lot of people we meet through different clubs and they'll say, well, I'm going to go do a tour of, of you know, English football teams. And we'll say, well, make sure you go visit the ones that are losing as well because they've probably got exactly the same facilities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they never do that. They go to the winning ones and go, only oh, we need to do that. And yeah, yeah, you, you mentioned that. And it's, it's funny because, you know, the West Tigers have probably now got the, the most modern facilities in the NRL. What they built at yeah. Concord, you know. Yeah, and and there's a you know we we did some work in uh, in football and I went to this facility called St George's Park, and it's like a hundred and hundred eighty million pounds cost them to make, and it's got a it's got its own Hilton hotel, it's got an analysis orb like the Death Star, it's got forty fields, got its own airport, it's just the most re- remarkable facility, and I I spoke at a conference there and just said why don't you just put the money in a bucket and burn it because this is just a waste of everyone's time and money and then they lost to iceland like who's <laughs> assistant yeah, coach right. is a dentist <laughs> and but it's not about the fact that english footballers are good or bad it's just it's a system that isn't constructed to be successful and that's that's what i'll keep coming back to is that's what the focus needs to be on is how did newcastle build themselves to be successful and do they have permission to do it from the from those above so on, I, on, the, on that sort of topic, can I just say about our own centre of excellence? Essentially, what the Knights have done that you know they've they've built their their gym and all that sort of year, but they've put a lot of their money into having lots of fields at the same place at the same standard, so all the teams can play next to each other. Do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, geography is massive. 
Yeah. But the actual quality of them is not is not the, yeah. okay. the, the core component of it. It's just like, okay, are we doing everything together? You know, yeah. so much of the so much of the you know, really small countries do better at, at the Olympics for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of them is why not a complete lack of choice as to who they pick, but they're also just generally doing things together much more often than the bigger countries. Can I ask you about Peter Parr, um, Ben, just in terms of, I mean, we as fans have noticed, not a significant, but certainly, I mean, the word we use is stability, which I think sort of is is a, is a catch cry that you might um, uh, sort of lean towards. We felt that his knowledge of football and certainly what he what he did at the Cowboys, he's managed to bring some of that uh, football IP, which everybody loves to talk about, to Newcastle. Do you think his movement into the director of football role has brought a bit of stability? Like, could potentially bring a bit of stability that might be showing on the on the field for both the men and the women? That's my experience. That's my experience of it. It it's brought some stability. Yeah. Uh, internally to the season, the next step of the stability is intra-seasonally. So does the Knights then turn over another set of players again? So the team has grown in stability through the season. So we've already got 28 players locked in out of our 30 for next year. Essentially, essentially there's three new players coming. Um, To me, that's a good sign. Yeah, 100%. And And then it's a case of there's then decisions you can make that then start to send you on the path towards where a Penrith is at. Which is, yeah. you know, it, it, at this point, it will Newcastle will be an older team with a modicum of cohesion. The next step is let's let's work towards a system that can allow us to bring kids through, and and it's interesting. So if you look at everyone, so you know, says oh, Sir Alex Ferguson, he won with kids, but the first thing he did in his first years, he almost lost his job on a number of occasions. Mm. He stabilised the starting team first, then he started to trickle through the kids. That's what's that's what they've done so far with the Knights with Pari. Yeah, stabilise yeah. the team first, yeah. and then allow them to bring those kids through. And I, and I must say, like the the ability of someone like Bradman Best to come through in the chaos that he's had is really impressive. Like he's mm. he's done so well, um, and and you'd really now like to see the improvement that you could get out of him with the right type of environment. And that's not saying that's not about coaching, right? That's actually allowing Adam O'Brien to coach him. Yeah, what Adam's yeah. been doing is basically reorganizing deck chairs on the Titanic. No, that's, a, that's a that's a poor phrase, but you understand what I'm saying. So, so you yeah, can, that's you... a bit rough on the Titanic comparing. <laughs> that to the Knights, right? Yeah, the Titanic probably had more survivors than the Knights have had over the last. <laughs> but so so essentially, this off season, as I said, yeah, the, the turnover is going to be very little this year because of where the contract situations are mostly. Um, but we have, you know, we we milked in guys like Dylan Lucas, Matt Kroger's playing bigger minutes. We've got a lot of guys that are now, you know, in the 22-man squads, we're not quite playing yet, but they're playing, you know, every week in reserve grade. And they're all, you know, your 21, 22, 23-year-olds. So is that now the next step, Ben, is, is to slowly filter those guys in one at a time into that squad? Yeah, and, and I think the next thing, too, is you start working it backwards, too, is you start saying, okay, what's happening in reserve grade? How can we start working on those guys? How do we start up in their skill set to then play the way we want? How can we improve how we play, simplify it? And then you work back to your 18s, to your 16s. So you, because if you just focus on the 16s, but your top team is in chaos, then whatever it produces doesn't matter because it just goes into a shit show and they just- Which, which, is, what happened, which is what happened to Nathan Brady here. Nathan Brady here, we had a lot of success in 16s and 18s and all those guys got thrown in the first grade and were out of first grade within 12 months. Yeah, and they end up coming back and scoring tries against you. That's yeah. The, 
And then now we brought Jack Cogger back seven years later. He's coming back next year. Yeah. Um, I remember saying to somebody that, because um, I remember looking through the old lists and, and talking about um, Will Smith. And I was yep. talking to, oh, yeah. um, and and someone, and, I, and someone, I was talking to someone, you know, that he used to be at the Knights, and they're like, I have no idea he was ever at the Knights. I'm like, yeah, he was a junior at the Knights, and he, he, he was a, he was the star, he was the star in the lower grades of the, of the Knights. Yeah. So there's, you know, the amount of guys that have left the club in the last twenty five years and gone elsewhere to be successful is is really painful, right? And and what then ends up happening is 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 that people start saying, oh, the Knights are no good at who they're retaining. That's actually not the right question to ask it's actually about saying okay if if you have a good young player and that good young player goes to a good club like goes to a melbourne or goes to a penrith then he will develop into what he can be yeah and whoever you keep won't yeah so so if you look at melbourne in the afl in the 90s they got the first round draft pick for like five years in a row or something yeah they kept and, tanking and they yeah but but the thing was is that those players none of those players became anything but Hawthorne and Geelong would have taken the same guys, right? It wasn't that they were taking the wrong guys. They were taking the same guys, but because they were so poorly built, they weren't able to do anything with them. Yeah. Whereas Geelong will take the 300th pick and turn him into a, you know, an all-time player. So that's what you want to get out of Newcastle is you actually want to say, we are going to miss out on some of our juniors, but we will make who we have better. And that's, that's where you need to get to. So the other side of that is that this year, see that season happen. Like a guy like Greg Marge, who's bounced around between clubs and never really found his form. You know, he's been he's been a, you know probably in the top three or four wingers of the competition this year. There's been several others that have you know really had career years. And do you think that's down to stability, purely down to you know we we basically put the same eight or nineteen guys in our seventeen for three months now. I mean, what I do know is if you don't have it, no one looks any good. Yeah. So you, you you give them the potential to perform well. I mean, the way we describe it to, to clubs is cohesion allows you to actually properly pick who can play well and who can't. Because in instability, what you'll end up doing is dumping guys who end up playing very well for someone else. Yeah, yeah. And so you, yeah. it allows you to to start to look at the detail of the person. Zach that, Hosking. That, that, that Zach yeah. Hosking is the Newcastle, the current poster boy for the Newcastle Knights not taking a punt on someone who's about to win a premiership. Right. Um, so, so it's it allows people to show their wares. That'd be the thing I would say. If they if they're terrible, they're terrible. But it's it's interesting in that is that the really well built clubs don't tend to they have because they're making so few decisions. They tend to make much more right decisions um, with the guys they bring in because they can do the research on them and go, okay, well, let's really look into him. And like I remember Hawthorne, they, they talked in the two thousands about how they would go and look into a guy's family and find everything out about him because they could put the time into it. Whereas other clubs are basically like, we just need to find a winger tomorrow. Is anyone available? Go through the agents, you know, and bring a guy in with a terrible reputation, a criminal record. You know, there's an unfortunate history. Of a lot of clubs are bringing in guys with, with bad yeah. behaviours and continuing that record. Richmond recruited Ben Cousins while he was high. So... Uh, <laughs> um, can I ask you about the women's team, Ben? Have you have you had much of a chance to look at the NRLW this season? I I, I haven't. I apologise. No, no I apologies do, necessary. I, I do, and again, that's really a nature of watching a number of different sports. But I think what what I would say is that you've had some dynasties in in the uh, in the NRLW, particularly around Brisbane, that have kind of been 
taken apart. I think that the growth they've done though with the NRLW has been much better than the AFLW, which has been a highly rapid expansion. So, so basically you, you have teams, new teams come in, they take the old teams apart. And so there's no cohesion across the competition. And then, and then more new teams come in and they disintegrate the, the old teams. Um, for, would it be fair to say, I think you guys said to me last year that a lot of the girls who went down to Sydney to play at the Roosters then came back up to Newcastle? Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the basis of our premiership team was, yeah, Roosters players, the, the, the local girls, yeah. Would it be fair to say there's a lot of touch footy in women's NLW? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so so essentially, and this, I know that for the Hunter personally, basically the girls play touch to this 14 or 15, progress to the league tag, progress to the league, and that's how it sort of developed. Like all I think of is is Wall's End, right? Yeah, we yeah, Wall all the touch fields at Wall's End. That's where I grew up. I grew up across the road from them. Yeah, I, I would say that that you know, um, one of the things that really helps teams to be successful in a way is isolation. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, um, cities a long way from anywhere else, so you don't have people intermingling. So I yeah. think that the 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 strength of 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 could it could be is girls growing up playing touch footy in Newcastle together, and then yeah. bringing them into that league, and you could build a dynasty on that. Right, and, if you do that properly, and in the and in the league tag system, it's, you know, it's expanded now. But in previously, yeah, you know, years there was there was four teams basically in league tag, so they all played together. You know, then they played for the Knights, the best ones. So that that's where we our development really took off at, at, in the area. Well, the Australian women's um, sevens team basically took a, took the Australian women's touch footy team and took a lot of those girls across and won a gold medal because there was no sevens women's sevens previous to that. So they basically had to form a team out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. So. Apologies if it's it's noisy in the background. <laughs> no, please don't apologise. My um, we usually have the third co-host in my little cavoodle, who's uh, unfortunately at uh, the other half's house tonight. So we're uh, we're enjoying having that um, that canine participation. Um, I mean, one of the things that we sort of because what you mentioned about the expansion of the uh, NRLW is quite an interesting one because they've sort of gone from four teams to six teams to now 10 teams and everyone was concerned that this year would be the big jump that might I mean Bredo from what I've seen I don't think the quality at all has has diminished I think if anything it's given an opportunity for other players who were probably of that that standard to to be able to participate in the league yeah and and this league's been this season's probably been the most even. You know, basically everyone beats everybody. You know, everyone's sort of one and two, two and one, that sort of that that sort of system. And and I think it was kind of smart from the NRL in terms of they gave a very limited salary cap in terms of the top earners. So clubs could not go and buy two or three stars. All they could buy was one star and then try and uh, put teams together. So the expansion teams got a leg up. You know, they didn't have to try and spend astronomical amounts of money to get players. Players just ended up there. And you're right. And there was enough players in the system because of things like Tasha Gale and the local state competitions that they just filled out squads with players that were ready to go. I, I would say also, though, like I could see a lot of rugby union girls across going into the NRLW because yeah. we don't have that level of professionalism. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Can I ask you, Ben? Knights got four or five super, super W players in their side. Yeah, because uh, I do. Not, have you had a chance to see any of the game? Because I t and I know you said you don't know much about rugby league, which obviously is not true. But I, I can tell you, when it comes to just if if you get if I was told what is the game of rugby league over the weekend that I want to watch, just from a purely rugby league perspective, 
you pick the women's game at the moment, and I don't know what I put it down to, but it's 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 played in a way where at the moment you get the feeling that skill is still paramount over athleticism. But the other thing as well is that, um, and I, obviously I need to be careful about what I do say because I don't want to. I enjoy watching the way they play because there are elements to it now where there's. <laughs> There's more skill involved to get the ball moving around, but the hits are still hard, whereas you get the feeling with the men's game a lot now, it's coached to within an inch of its life that you're sort of waiting for the slightest error. While it's in the women's game, you sort of, well, anything can sort of happen here and it does keep your interest levels high. Does any of that actually make sense? Yeah, I think too, once you add that level of contact, you're going to add a level of fatigue. And so when you get that level of fatigue, you can the individuals can start to break open the defence. Um, whereas in, yeah. the, in the men's game, you've got guys who are basically used to going up and down, back and forth for 80 minutes. And so you it's the, the ability to take apart a, a defence is much more nuanced. So, yeah, so you see that. But I think the the, the positive part about it is that if, if, you ta- if you want to see people uh, play well with the football and be good passers, like touch footy is a great place to go see it. So if you get that level of skill that can come into the game, some of the passing is as good as the men is. And I've played touch footy in Newcastle and got smoked regularly <laughs> by girls. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, and I'm completely unable to defend them and their, their ability to take on the one-on-one is just as good. And, um, and I think it's actually interesting hearing Gus Gould um, commentate the women's game. And and actually say oh, I can see what she's trying to do here, or I can see where she's trying to where the vision is coming. And he, I think he gives it a little bit of credibility, but he doesn't kind of just shit can it or you know like sometimes um, uh, if you ever heard Shane Warne sometimes uh, commentate women's cricket. Yeah, absolutely. So she just goes, she is bowling pies. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. F- f- Gus wouldn't do that at least. No, and um, yeah, you, it, it's it's interesting. You're right. You're right with Gus. He. He does go beyond just to make some sort of skill errors and actually analyzes what the vision they're seeing go you know, in the play, which is which is quite interesting because it sort of shows that the girls have a good understanding of the game. I've coached women uh, a little bit, and I must say, my God, they're much easier to coach than men. Oh, no, yeah, there's no and, doubt. Yeah. yeah, so much easier, and they listen and they they'll they'll take in what you say, and also there's what we call a purative experience. They actually they don't have to unlearn something in order to learn yeah, it. Yep, yeah, 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 yeah. So they actually yeah. take it on and they do it straight off the bat, whereas the guys will go, oh, hang on, this isn't how I'd learn how to do it. Hey, you guys, I've got to go. Right, no, yeah, look, that's uh, that's perfect time. Um, ben, we might let you go and uh, and we'll wrap things up. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you again, sir. All right. Down the blind, Andrew John. Hey, Brad, it's it's just it's always good fun to have a chat with Ben, um, particularly when it comes to obviously all things Newcastle Knights and rugby league. Um, but you and I were just saying uh, in the break then is that funnily enough, well, actually for me, not only do, do I feel a little bit more confidence about the Newcastle Knights men's side going into 2024, I actually do feel a little bit more confident, first of all, against this about this weekend against the Bulldogs, um, but also for the rest of the season. Like, it sort of tempered my expectations, but by the same time, I was like, 
Well, really, for this season, we've sort of said we need to win a final. And what I, my take from the chat with Ben is that, well, that that's that's on the table. That's still on the cards in terms of being a possibility this year. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you, you, that's that's the thing I took out of the stuff with Ben was, you know, that assuming that, you know, we, we don't have a horrendous injury curse in the late part of the season, this, is going, this role is going to continue. Yeah, we'll probably drop a game or something, but... This is not, you know, this is not just we've got hot and it's going to fall apart at some stage. This is sustainable. And, the, you know, in teams like Canberra and that, which we put the cleaners through, and Melbourne, that wasn't through luck. That was because, you know, that's how it was supposed to play out. Um, So the men's team have got the Bulldogs just week. Oh, before we do get to that as well, um, Kennedy Cherrington got uh, four weeks for her um, spear tackle on... Um, uh, oh, sorry, what's up? Leishon. Leishon Albert-Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think she's got off lightly there. Yeah. I mean, I, I and because everyone says it's a shortened season, it should be a shortened suspension. I get that. I take that on board. But she's been a, she's essentially been as, uh, punished for about 45% of the season. And the like the equivalent that we've seen from the men's competition, I'm loath to compare it too much to the men's competition, but... From an overall perspective, like well, four games out of nine plus four, potentially finals, if you know the eels pick up, it, it feels light on because that's I've got to tell you, mate, that's one of the most dangerous spear tackle, tackles, just full stop, I've ever seen in my life. Um, over the yeah, weekend, yeah, have, have you seen the still shot where she literally like the top, the crown of her head was what, oh. hit, the, what hit the ground, you know, like it's as bad as spear tackle gets. I, I thought four was light, I thought you should have got six or seven, but. Um, yeah, I don't know how they they load it in terms of the season, but I I don't think that um, I don't think she should get to play again this year. And as it turns out, now she will. She'll get the last two games. Um, I the other one that I mean, this, it, this I think this is what irritates me even more is that Caitlin Johnson essentially copped a quarter of the suspension that Cherrington did for what I thought was a fairly light on pun like a light on hit on the day as well and again it goes back to that fundamental error we tweeted from the pot account so i tweeted from the pot account over the weekend is that whatever you think about the kennedy suspension you know cj suspension but then you know the jerome luai suspension non-suspension as well is that as long as the nrl is continuing to hand out punishments the thing about the thing about punishment is that you should have some modicum of um, objectivity and ability to see some sort of reasonable outcome. Granted, it, it doesn't have to be exact every time, but when you see an offence and then the, and you think about the subsequent subsequent punishment, it shouldn't be the ridiculous guessing game that it currently is. And once that instability or once that lack of integrity is even perceived in that um, area of the game, it goes to the very fundamental issue of the game, which is that you lose trust in the process. And if you've got no trust in the integrity of the competition that you're watching, you start to question, what the fuck is it that we're really competing for? The whole point of this point system and the way they do it now was to make it more consistent. And And it's actually less consistent. Yes. Because the way they do loadings and and it's simple the fact that the people different people like the match review community is not the same people watching it every week. They have different people that rotate through that job and they have different views. Like Jerome Luai, like I I, I have no doubt that if someone different in that system looked at Jerome Luai tackle, he could have got a grade three because he literally shoulder charged him straight into the middle of the head. You know, mm. it, it's it's incredible how inconsistent that has become, and I don't 
I don't like it. I don't like the fine system where guys are doing really dangerous crusher tackles and getting a fine, where a guy that gets a actual swinging arm that does no damage is getting one or two weeks. It's it's ridiculous. Um. Anyway, look, the, the suspensions are the suspensions are the, the men's team got off um, without any worries. Uh, Lockie Fitzgibbon got a, a fine for his hip drop ta- tackle. Can I ask you about that, mate? Because I'm I'm in the boat where it's like. Uh, Unfortunately, there was enough there that Lockie did that I'm like, look, you gave the referee every, and the bunker every reason possible for them to say that's a hip drop tackle. And once they decide it's a hip drop tackle, that's 10 in the bin. So I was annoyed about it, but I I couldn't argue against the decision. Oh, my problem was that um, Abby Kairos got tackle of the week for the uh, for a bigger hip yeah. drop for that. You know, that's I, I think I think Lockie's was a hip drop. I don't think I I, I think 10 in the bin was fine. I think a fine was fine. But to me, turning the bin for that, which is a pure accident sliding down, is ridiculous when you consider that you get the same turn in the bin for a swinging arms nearly knocking someone out. Yeah. No. And again, it goes back to that consistency, integrity. PVL, figure it out. We know he's not going to. Hey, we've got a big game coming up this Sunday in the men's um, and the women's uh, game. I think it's the double header up at McDonald Jones this weekend on Sunday. Yep. Have I got that correct? Double header, yep. Um, we'll talk about the women first, mate. And the reason I want to talk about the women first is, did they do it? Because you were you were really down on the girls after the Cowboys game. Did they do enough against an otherwise insipid Parramatta game to restore any, some, all of your faith? Yeah, yeah. No, or do they, you still the, have your doubts? The attitude was way better, but I still, I still think there's elements of that team that, and it's it's been three games, so I'm not going to judge. But to me, there's some real um, concerning signs. You know, there's there's so so many poor parts of the game where you know where we just lose our lose our minds for five or six minutes and can either concede a top top try or turn keep turning the ball over. Where it gets the good side like the Roosters, we'll get absolutely punished for those lapses we've been having. But it's three weeks in. The attitude was a lot better. So, you know, we'll see where we go from now. The Titans are top of the table undefeated, so we'll get a better guide this week. You still have your concerns about Jesse Southwell, don't you? And the only thing I'll say before I hand it over to you on that is that it's – because this is a funny conversation to be having – because what what's going to happen from the Eels game is that, you know, her step and uh, try assist to ice the game at the end, that's what people will focus on. But there were a lot of signs still in Sunday's game leading up to the, that final try assist that, uh, you know, consistent with the rest of the team, you're seeing a lot of those troubling signs where you just, they still, there's still a lot there to fix. Yeah, I, I just think Jessie's maybe in her own head a little bit. She just seems to be overthinking the game a bit. She's, you know, I I don't know why she gets in a dummy half so much. I I I assume it's not coaching because you did it Origin too. So I wouldn't imagine both coaches and would have that same idea of your halfback in your dummy half all the time. Um, I don't so I don't know what that's all about. Um, yeah, I don't know about Jessie. Like, I don't get me wrong. Like, as I said last week, I still think she's. Going to be an absolute superstar. She already is a superstar, mm. but I just have concerns about where she's at mentally at the moment. I th- I wonder whether it's all come a bit fast for her. Um, I'll be honest. I wouldn't be against maybe um, yeah taking a bit of pressure off her and Caitlin Moran playing halfback a couple of times this year. 
So drop like drop no, Jesse. No, like, I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying necessarily drop Jesse. But just like the nine week season, Jesse's young body. She has some niggles. What I'm yep. saying is, if Jesse has a few niggles, I wouldn't be against you know just letting her get herself right, get a body good, able to handle a longer season, mentally handle a longer season, and just not have the pressure of her playing 80 oh, 70 minutes every week throughout the season, leading the team around. No, look, that's fair enough. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Ron Griffith's a premiership winning coach. He's earned a bit of the right to sort of um, make the decisions as he sees fit. If that was the way he decided to go, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly back it. Um, I mean, I, I know this is a weird thing to say considering it's a top two clash, but you and I know from experience that Knights teams going into top two clashes, um, you know, two or three rounds into the season sometimes doesn't count for much. Um but we're obviously a chance against the Titans this weekend. Oh, well, you know, we should be going we'll, into yeah, confidence. We'll win. We'll win. There's no, I don't, I don't, no real doubt in my mind we'll win this week. Titans, Titans are overachieving. There is, there are, Titans are a team that if you don't put them away, they'll come and get you. That's what they've done all three weeks. Well, but that's what they did to us last season. So we, we scraped away with a two-point win over them in round two last year. Um, so the Titans are a team that we, we know from that experience alone that they aim up well against us. Yeah, no, the Titans, that's the team they are. You know, they, they, they'll match us physically. Um, yeah, they take their chances. But we're, we're, a, bit, we're a better team than them, I think. I'm, I'm fairly confident we'll get the win. Just a quick shout-out to the uh, the new recruit, Georgia Roach, from the UK. Yeah, oh, yeah. She, she, she looks a star in the making. Well, she's a star. You know, she's she's probably the highest-profile player in the English game. The original Women of Steel when she was a, a child. I think she was 17 when she won it. Um yeah, no, she's she looks very good, very solid defensively, and her attack will come and she gets to know the girl and the girls in the system. But no, very very good start from Georgia. And she'll she'll gel as well with I think she'll take a lot more pressure off yeah. Jesse and she'll gel with Jesse in that halves combination. And um, then she's only she's exactly what Jesse needs, you know. She's she's not an old head because she's only twenty twenty three, I think. So she's not an old head, but she's vastly experienced, you know, in the in the um professional game and internationally. So I think that should be great for Jesse in that that regard. And we finally get to talk about all things Southwell as well, not just Jesse. How good was it to see Hannah Southwell and why was it the best, almost the best thing to happen over the weekend? Like just, you, I, here you go. Watching Hannah hit, mate, I would not ever. Holy shit. Yeah. Oh, I know, she was she cage in. That, she, her technique is absolutely outstanding. I oh, love to see it. So when we, we we I think it was uh, for round one of the NRLW when she was um, sort of um, prowling along the sidelines uh, just before kickoff against the Dragons. We yelled, I yelled out to her from Bay Fifty Three, "Hey, hey, Hannah, give us a wave." Yeah, she did not like that, and she just <laughs> she gives you that look deep into your soul that is yeah. just like you are yeah. a frightening, frightening person um, for all the right reasons. Um, and, yeah, I, uh, I get a real feel of nineteen seventies Western suburbs about her slapping in the dressing sheds. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's a bit of a, a bit of a John Donnelly type. <laughs> um. We'll be there on um, we'll be there on Sunday to watch the girls uh, kick off. That's a um, one fifty kickoff before the men's game. Bretto, my take from the chat with Ben is lock in the W this weekend. The um, the Knights. I mean, we okay. So we've got a couple of outs. So one, Jacob Sofidi got named. He obviously won't play. Uh, Bradman Best is out, but Inari Tuala should do the job. Um, Dylan Lucas, Dylan Lucas is in as well. Um, we should win on Sunday, 
But the thing is, is that we do have a couple of injuries. As you pointed out off air, um, the Bulldogs have their full pack um, for the first time this season. And also, you, you just you cannot discount how much they will absolutely be fired up to correct a lot of wrong, wrongs done um, in that 66-0 game. Yeah, they're a proud club, Ken. I mean, I can imagine, you know, they, they'd be getting the full rounds of the kitchen this week to get some revenge on us. Yeah, the bench chat helps me because, you know, those guys are back, but there's no continuity in that team. You know, they've, they've mm-hmm. been chopping and changing the entire season. Yep. Um, you know, we, we've, we've got the, the same spine. I tell you what, the, the form Jacko Hastings is in, my lord. He, um, he's an old school halfback. He just he just sees the game. And he, he, he was reading. Run. He was reading the defence against the Dolphins to perfection. The amount of times he was just picking up right. So you're going to rush out of the line and try and cut me. And the way he dipped behind the line for the pass. It was just, I, and I don't want to drag him too much, but you know I do get fun of it. I said, those are, those are the passes from our halfback we were never getting under Mitchell Pearce. Yeah, yeah. Because Mitchell Pearce, Mitchell Pearce was a, is a great halfback in terms of athletic ability. He's got probably as much athletic ability as any halfback's ever had. Um, but he didn't read the game as well as a guy like Jacko does. And it's still, you know, I'll cliche, the game slows down for Jacko. He just sees the game in front of him and mm. he doesn't he doesn't have that athletic ability, so it's all between the ears with him. Um, yeah, no, he's he's the perfect foil for KP. Um, yeah, I mean, can I, one thing I do want to talk to you about the Dolphins game is that um, I, I genuinely do think that if that game, A, hadn't been played in Perth, and B, we hadn't lost Fitzgibbon for 10 minutes, I still think we win that 40 to 50 to nil. I, I think, because I was talking with um, uh, Don Sunday um, he's a big, big Rabbitohs fan. We might even try and get him on after the Souths game if he's if he's still following the season by that stage. Um, and he was saying, you know, this is it. Just feels like I'm following the Rabbit Rabbitohs of the '90s. And the one thing I said, I said, look, man, you cannot discount what a punish it is to travel over to Perth to do anything. And I said, the two, the one thing I actually picked up from the double header was you noticed that the two underperforming teams had been they dragged the performing teams back down to their level a bit. And so the Sharks are slightly better than the Dolphins and were able to beat the Rabbitohs, whereas the Dolphins, there just wasn't enough of that gap to close and we were able to get over the top. But I, I just I just don't think last weekend was a good a good um sort of snapshot to take of where those four teams are at at the moment. Anyone that has done the flight to Perth, it's a freaking awful, oh. awful flight. It's a, and 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 for the night, you know, we we don't have direct flight to um to Perth. So I'm about to wear to go to Sydney first, which adds, adds extra to it. Um, no, it's an horrendous flight. I I don't I would take anything out of that form over there for for any of those teams that played. Um, no, it's 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 an interesting one. When we talk about the expansion to Perth, it's. It's something the the like the time zones, the expansion all works, but that trip travel is a real element that needs to be taken into account, especially when we have a New Zealand team. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it, it's uh, it's a huge impact in the A League as well when Wellington yeah. have to play Perth. So, yeah. with that in mind, though, does the trip back from Perth have that big an impact on how we're going to perform this? It, it, it's my concern. The dogs off the bite us traveling to to Perth and back. And if we were if we we're away, I'd be I'd be. Terribly concerned. I think at home we'll still be okay, but if we're away, I'd be panicking. Yeah, no, I um, I definitely agree, mate. Um, hey, I, look, we've been um, we've been chatting a fair, as we always tend to do with uh, when Ben sort of uh, drops by. Um, 
Yeah, it's just, I, mean, I mean, as I said, you know, you and I feeling a little bit more confident about this weekend, definitely feeling a lot more comf- comfortable about um, next year. But um, what are your sort of main takeaways from um, from Ben's chat? Because, and I'll give you some time to think about it while I give you mine, is that um, vindication is not the word. Okay, so this is, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to turn the night's doing okay into any told you so, because we don't know what's going to happen next week. We don't know what's going to happen next month, next year. So... But it gives me, my chat with Ben tonight at least, gives me some confidence that I feel like the club looks like it knows what it's doing. Like, you think of all the pressure that was on the board, that was on the club to get rid of the coach, get rid of the coach, bring in new players, you know, KP's paid too much, is he going to retire? To, to weather that storm and be told, look, for all intents and purposes, from an, an analytic perspective, it looks like the club is building in the right direction. That that just that's so calming to hear from someone who looks at looks at it beyond the result and beyond the emotion of how the game on the day feels. It's 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 been a different chat with Ben this time as opposed to our last two, which is like, give us something, Ben. We need some hope as opposed to the, to this time. It's like no, this there is clear, objective, constructive. Um, substantive elements that look towards building a, 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 con- a contention, a title contending premiership winning team and that's really, you can't at this stage ask for more than that as a Knights fan No, that's exactly right like, yeah, to me it just reiterates all the things that we, yeah, we'd hope that the club is on the right track I, I did take note when you asked Ben about Peter Parr and obviously Ben's in the industry so he can't so you know, it doesn't say too much but uh, to me the reaction of him was yeah, part part of the man for the job. He uh, he seemed very confident with that, very comfortable with that. And and we have, as we know, Ben's a Knights fan, so you know he he wants the Knights to do you know, as well as not better than everybody else. So the fact that Ben was comfortable with Par in charge gave me a bit, bit of a bit of a boost. But no, I I think that I took out of it exactly what we wanted to, which was the club is stable. You know, what we yeah. Saw, this runs really happened. You know, the club's stable. We're not turning over staff. We're not turning over players. You know, there's Minimum players coming next year. The staff don't change at all, um, and the trajectory is going up. And, and as we talk about, it's right throughout the club. It's not just in first grade. It's you know the reserve grade are down near the bottom of the table, but they're playing how the first grade coach wants them to play. They're not playing how they necessarily need to play to win. Bruno, I'll see you at the game on Sunday. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening again, as uh, usual. Um, you find us on the socials, uh, at Bay53Pod, on Twitter, on um, uh, Instagram, and on um, threads. Uh, Bruno, enjoy the rest of your week. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. And, uh, yeah, see you on the socials. Thanks, guys. Sports Best Friends would like to thank you for listening right to the end. You are our kind of people. Find other great sports podcasts in our family by subscribing. And remember, social media isn't a bad place. You just need to follow the right people.